Okay, so let's um, begin where we ended the video and turn back to Isaiah chapter 6. Um, this is um, an, an intriguing uh, passage, and there's one particular intriguing point um, which uh, I just mentioned. I, I don't know the I don't understand the significance of this, but it's, I just mentioned it. Is it Isaiah chapter six is about um, Christ in His glory as King and Priest? We we showed we saw that uh, in the, the end of last the last talk, and and obviously then that was generally at least linked with Melchizedek. But what's uh, intriguing is in the verses before in chapter five, um, and in verse twenty seven. Um, it says, none shall be weary nor stumble among them, none shall slumber nor sleep, neither shall the girdle of their loins be loosed, nor the latchet of their shoes be broken. Now, if your margin is like my margin, you, you'll, you'll have a reference back there to Genesis chapter 14, where, where she, uh, Abraham mentions a shoe latchet. Now, I, I don't, I, I've thought a little bit about this, and I don't really understand the significance of that. Obviously, there is must be um, a significance here, given the King Priest uh, context in Isaiah, in Isaiah 6. But just to point out that there's this, this specific link there that goes back to Genesis 14. This is only two places. There's two Hebrew words. I mean, it's one word in, in the English um, in, uh, um, in Genesis 14, but it's one word. It's two words in Hebrew. But it, the, the, these are the only two places where these two words occur shoe and latchet together. In the, so it's just a little link there. But Genesis, for at the very least, it shows us. It helps establish the link that we're making anyway between that, that the Melchizedek passage and this context here in Isaiah. Um, now, in Isaiah chapter 6 and verse 1, then, um, as we've already read, it says, In the year that King Isaiah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon the throne. So this vision of the Lord upon the throne in the temple was in the year that King Isaiah died. So what is the... Um, significance of that, um, particularly for the um, our subject uh, that we're looking at. But let's go back to Second Chronicles and chapter twenty-six to see um, what led to Isaiah's death. So, in Second Chronicles chapter twenty-six and verse sixteen, we read. But when he was strong, that's Isaiah, his heart was lifted up to his destruction, for he transgressed against Yahweh his God and went into the temple of Yahweh to burn incense upon the altar of incense. And Azariah the priest went in after him, and with him fourscore priests of Yahweh that were valiant men, and they withstood Isaiah the king and said unto him, It appertaineth not unto the Isaiah to burn incense unto Yahweh, but to the priests, the sons of Aaron, that are consecrated to burn incense, go out of the sanctuary, for thou hast trespassed, neither shall it be for thy honour from Yahweh, uh, from Yahweh God. Um, and so what we find here is Isaiah, the king, uh, trying to uh, uh, be a priest, but of course not in the spirit of uh, Melchizedek. Um, but what we particularly like to note here is this conflict that's taking place between, on the one hand, the priest, the faithful priests, Azariah the priest and the others with him, the other 80 with him, um, and Azar the king. There's a conflict here between, on the one hand, um, the priests, and on the other hand, um, the king. Of course, in the end, Azar, as we know, is smitten by, uh, by leprosy, um, 
And um, the priest then, in verse 20, thrust him out from thence. And the, yeah, he himself hasted also to go out. So we actually see the priest pushing uh, the king um, out of, uh, of the temple. So we see a conflict here between the king and the priest. So bearing that in mind, what we're going to do now is go to another very important uh, Melchizedek-type uh, passage, and that's in Zechariah and chapter 6. Zechariah chapter 6. Now in verse 9, uh, we read, And the word of Yahweh came unto me, saying, Take of them of the captivity, even of Heldai of Tobijah and Jediah, which are come from Babylon, and come thou the same day, and go into the house of Josiah, the son of Zephaniah. Then take silver and gold, and make crowns, and set them upon the, and set upon the head of Joshua, the son of Josedek, the high priest. Now, a um, couple of things to note about this. Here's a priest, um, and he's going to have a crown put on his head. And it's a crown of a king, uh, the type of crown a king would have. That's the first thing to note. Also, um, just in passing, uh, really, that the um, without looking into this in, in detail, but um, in verse 11, it speaks of crowns plural. But in verse 14, it says, and the crowns shall be to uh, Helen. Now, those who can read Hebrews say, that shall be there in the Hebrew, it's in the singular. So like it's in actual fact, it's one crown. So it's a single crown, but it's made up of ringlets um, of metal, gold and silver. So what we've got here is a, a, a priest who's going to be uh, crowned uh, as a king with a, with a crown. Um, so um, in verse uh, 12, uh, we read, um, and speak unto him, uh, saying, this is Joshua they were speaking to, thus speaketh Yahweh of hosts, saying, Behold, the man whose name is the branch, and he shall go up out of his place, and he shall build the temple of Yahweh, even he shall build the temple of Yahweh, and he shall bear the glory, and shall sit and rule upon the throne, and he shall be priest, a, a priest upon his throne, and the council of peace shall be between them both. In other, and that's and the both there is referring to the fact that he was going to be both um, um, a priest or was a priest. Uh, well, it's speaking in terms of prophecy, but in terms of the, the type, he would be both a priest and a king. So there will be a peace between the priesthood um, and kingship, if you like. Now, why should there ever not be a peace, peace between? Well, we've seen an example in Isaiah where we actually had, on the one hand, we had Isaiah, the king, and on the other hand, we had the priests. Um, the priests had rebuked the king. In the end, they had to drive him out um, of the temple. So you did not have peace between the king um, and priest at that time. Um, and of course, that's not the only example where we find um, uh, conflict between king and priest. And of course, um, uh, beyond uh, the truth, beyond Israel, you've always got conflicts um, 
not between two religious beliefs, but you've always got conflicts between, on the one hand, rulers, and on the other hand, um, uh, religion. Um, and so that sort of um, that, that conflict, which we find in scripture, leaches out into uh, into the world where even though people haven't got the truth, the same sort of conflict arises. But that's not going to be the case when the Lord Jesus Christ returns and he rules as king in Jerusalem. There will no longer be a, a conflict between um, the state on the one hand and, and religion on the other. Um, there will no longer be a conflict between king and priest because they will uh, the two things will be united together as one in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so there will be a council of peace between the king and the priest. And of course, this was um, foreshadowed in Melchizedek. Now, let's go back to Hebrews now and Hebrews chapter seven. We've looked at Melchizedek as king of righteousness. Now we can just highlight um, part of the significance of him being king of peace. Just to remind ourselves, Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 2. To whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being by interpretation king of righteousness, and after that also king of Salem, which is king of peace. And so what did that peace involve? Well, part of that uh, peace involved no longer there, there being um, conflict between uh, king and priest of the likes which we read of um, concerning Isaiah. So there, there will be the uh, council of peace between the king um, and the priest in the Lord Jesus Christ, because he will be both king um, and um, priest when he reigns as king in Jerusalem. Because there's other aspects of this piece as well. Let's just go back to Ephesians chapter 2. Not to look at this in any detail, but in Ephesians chapter 2, we speak of peace. Um, um, verse 13 of Ephesians 2. But now in Christ Jesus, ye who sometimes were far off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace, who hath made both one. And have broken down the middle of the wall, partition between us. Now, the both there is referring um, to Jew and Gentile. So, another aspect of Melchizedek as uh, king, uh, as king of peace, is the peace that will be brought between, in the end, between Jew and Gentile um, in uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. Because that phrase "far off" um, that occurs uh, back there in uh, in uh, Zechariah as well. Now let's go. Now let's go back to Zechariah and chapter six because we're going to look at something now which is intriguing. And um, usually, when I use the word intriguing, what I mean is it looks interesting, but I don't really understand the full understand the significance of it. But we're going to have a go at looking at this. And I, I've, for what I've brethren have written about this, they don't, they don't seem to look at the significance or mention it, or there's mention in passing or mention the names, but don't actually look at a uh, query of what the significance is. Look at the end of verse 10 in Zechariah chapter six, which we know is a passage which um, relates to Melchizedek because it talks about the king and priest. It says at the end of verse 10, and go into the house of Josiah, the son of Zephaniah. That's where they were to put the crown on Joshua. Now, if we hadn't turned this for this passage up in Zechariah. I said, right, we're going to look at Josiah and Zephaniah. 
you'd say, oh, right, we're going to be looking at the King Josiah and we're going to be looking at the prophet Zephaniah because Zephaniah wrote in the reign of Josiah. So we've got here, it's, it's one person, it's, it's, the, it's the house of Josiah, uh, the son of Zephaniah. But we've got these two names coming together, Josiah and Zephaniah. What's the significance of that? Well, uh, let's go back to Zephaniah. And um, this, these are just suggestions which we're going to give now. Um, and um, let's see if we can uh, at least come up with some, well, we're going to come up with some expositional points, but whether it's the full explanation for uh, for the mention of Josiah and Zephaniah. It can't be coincidence. In, in Zechariah, these two men are mentioned together. Now, in verse 1 of Zephaniah chapter 1, it says, the word of Yahweh, which came unto Zephaniah, the son of Cushi, the son of Gedaliah, the son of Amorah, the son of Hiskar, in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah. So there we've got these two names mentioned together. Obviously, here two separate persons, prophet and the uh, prophet and the king. Now, what, let, let's look at Zephaniah and look out for anything which relates to the theme of Melchizedek, um, as we read uh, of um, in Zechariah and back in in Genesis. So let's just pick up one or two points. Um, in uh, let's go to Zephaniah chapter two now and verse three. There it says, "Seek ye Yahweh, all ye meek of the earth, which have wrought his judgment." Now we should say, of course, the context of Zephaniah is the reign of Josiah. Josiah has been doing the cleansing. Um, he's been cleansing Jerusalem and the land of uh, Judah of, of idols. Uh, but of course, the heart of the people that haven't been really. Uh, with him in the in the conversion um, and you've got allusions to the searches being made um, for example chapter 1 verse 12 they're searching with candles looking out looking for idols and things but the problem was people's hearts really were not being changed but in Zephaniah chapter 2 verse 3 it says seek ye Yahweh all ye meek of the earth which have wrought his judgment uh, seek righteousness seek meekness it may be you should be hid in the day of Yahweh's anger and that seek righteousness that is actually um alluded to if not quoted in matthew chapter six let's just go to matthew chapter six so we're interested in this for our study because it's speaking about righteousness mark chapter six and sorry uh matthew chapter six and verse 33 but seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things added, shall be added unto you. Now, it's speaking there about seeking two things, the kingdom of God, and in connection with that, his righteousness, seeking righteousness. Now, in that verse, actually, thinking of Melchizedek, we've got the idea of kingship, or at least the kingdom, and righteousness coming together. So Melchizedek, or the Lord Jesus, as, as the, as the order of Melchizedek, will reign as king. He will be the king of righteousness. And so, therefore, the kingdom of God, when it's set up, will be um, a kingdom of righteousness. So we've got, uh, is echoing there um, those words of um, Zephaniah to uh, uh, seek uh, to seek God. Now, interestingly, in this, here in Matthew chapter 6, um, it's just been speaking about Solomon. Of course, when we think of Solomon, we think of peace. So in terms of the king of peace, particularly because that, uh, that uh, relates um, to uh, Solomon. Um, and he's mentioned in, in the verses in the verses before. 
So um, we've got a, a verse there in Zephaniah, which speaks about seeking righteousness. Um, and we've seen how that relates to not just righteousness, but the kingship as well, because in the end, um, the kingdom of God will be a kingdom of righteousness. And so um, when we, if we're seeking the kingdom of God, we've got to be seeking uh, God's righteousness as well. Now let's go back to uh, Zephaniah, <clears throat> Zephaniah in chapter three, uh, this time chapter three. And we go right to the, the last verse where it says, and at that time will I bring you again, even in the time that I gather you, for I will make you a name and a praise among the people of the earth. When I turn back your captivity before your eyes, saith Yahweh. Now, in this passage, in the last part of Zephaniah, it's talking about when the kingdom will be established and when Israel will be brought into the new covenant. Um, when, for example, verse 14, it says, um, the daughter of Zion will shout, Israel will be glad and rejoice. It's speaking about the kingdom. Um, and we know that's when Christ as a king priest will reign. We've got here a verse which speaks ab about captivity. And what we're also doing, what, what we, we are doing is trying to find connections or, between Zephaniah and Melchizedek, or at least the theme of the king priest, just to see if there are uh, any links. Now, there's a link here. Now, if you just keep a finger in Zephaniah, and we we'll go back to Genesis chapter 14. Genesis chapter 14. Uh, we talked about this being a foundation passage for tithes. It's also a foundation passage for um, captivity or the ending of a captivity. Because in Genesis chapter 14 and verse 14, uh, we, we read, And when Abraham heard that his brother was taken captive, he armed his trained servants, born in his own house, 318, and pursued them unto Dan, because we know that he he, he, he captures them. Now that that oh, gets rescues them. And that word captive, the Hebrew word captive there, is related to that word for uh, captivity in uh, Zephaniah 3. So when it speaks about Zephaniah 3 verse 20, I turn back your captivity. If you want a prime example of that, foundation example of that, that that's in the case of those who had been taken captivity um, by uh, these four kings, uh, and of course this included Lot, um, their captivity um, was turned back by Abraham and those with him um, as they, uh, Abraham went to uh, rescue them. Now, what we'd like to do now, just put, put in some more connections. So keep a finger in Genesis 14, um, uh, stroke 15, and in Zephaniah. Right, here we have links between Zephaniah and Genesis chapter 14 and 15. So we'll just run through these now. Um, basically, it's highlighting them. In Zephaniah chapter 3. Um, and verse 12, it says, I will also leave in the midst of the and afflicted and poor people. Now, in Genesis chapter 15, remember, this is still the Melchizedek context, given what we said earlier. Uh, I'm look at this again in, shortly, but in it speaks about in verse 13, what would happen to them in what we know would be Egypt. And he said unto Abraham, know of a surety that thy seed shall be a stranger in a land that is not theirs, and shall serve them, and they shall afflict them. So the children of Israel are going to be afflicted in Egypt. Um, and this uh, is a type uh, for shadows what was going to happen, happen to them more than once in the future. Um, and in verse uh, 13, uh, verse 
12 of Zephaniah, uh, it, it refers there to how God's people had been afflicted, of which in Egypt was one of the, prior, one of the first uh, examples. Now, in Zephaniah 3, in verse 14, we've got uh, Jerusalem mentioned, because that links with Salem, both referring to the same location. In Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 15, we've got mention there of the king, the king of Israel. Um, and, of course, we've got the king mentioned in Genesis 14, king of Salem, Melchizedek. In Genesis 3, verse, in Zephaniah 3, verse 16, it says, In that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear thou not, and to Zion, let not thy hands be slack. Now, that's what was said to Abraham, the first part, in verse um, uh, Genesis chapter 15 and verse um, 1. We read, after these things, the word of Yahweh came unto Abraham in a vision, saying, Fear not, Abraham. So there was no need for fear, because God was with him. And in, in the end, this would be true. This will be true for Israel. There will be no need um, for them to fear. But also in that verse in Zephaniah, it says, Let not thy hands be slack. Now, of course, we've read of hands, or at least Abraham's hand, as he mentions in Genesis 14. And in verse 22, we read, and Abram's of Genesis 14, and Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted up my hand unto Yahweh. So his hand was not slack. His hand was not weak. He, lift, he had lifted up his hand to God. So we've got a bit of um, a, a, a contrast there, or at least Israel had been exhorted to no longer let their hands be slack. Lift up your hands, um, just like Abram had done all those years ago. And then in Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 20, um, we have the words, when I turn back your captivity, which we've looked at uh, already, and the same Hebrew word, um, just got the strongest numbers there, I, they occur in Genesis 14, verse 16, and he brought back all the goods and also brought again his brother Lot. Now, when uh, I was going through these, looking at these links, I wasn't expecting necessarily to find anything particular some of these aren't too specific. I mean, in the sense that, okay, we've got the word Jerusalem there, the king of Israel, well, they're very common words. But I think when you put them all together in that table, um, it, it just suggests there are some, oh, well, there are links, obviously, as far as we see, see there, between um, Genesis 14, stroke 15, um, Melchizedek context, and uh, this part of uh, Zephaniah. So I just wonder then, wait, is that is that why we have reference to both Josiah and Zephaniah in Zechariah? Um, is that telling us to look at, well, surely it's, it's just making a hint, look, look back at Zephaniah and see what's written there in relation to um, the king priest. So um, we'll leave it at that in that regard, um, but that's just um, um, some, some uh, suggestions there for uh, further further thought. Okay, let's go back then to Zechariah chapter 6. Remember, of course, that they're in this house uh, of uh, the house of Josiah, the son of Zephaniah, to crown Joshua. Now, in uh, verse 12, and this is highlighted for us in the English, at least in the AV, because, of course, it's in uh, capitals, we've got the branch, verse 12, and speak unto him, saying, Thus speaketh Yahweh of hosts, saying, Behold, the man whose name is the branch, and he shall grow up out of his place, he shall build the temple of Yahweh. So we've got the branch here, and we know, of course, this is ultimately referring to um, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, it's at this point that we begin to make a link with David, because if we go back now to um, 
uh, Jeremiah in chapter 23, where the same word is used. I have to be careful with the word branch in the English because it's not always the same Hebrew word. But in Genesis 23 and verse 5, we read these words about the branch. And we can see the links with Melchizedek. Behold, the days come, saith Yahweh, that I will raise unto David a righteous branch, and a king shall reign and prosper, and shall execute judgment and justice in the earth. So we've got righteous there, uh, we've got justice, so it links, that links obviously with Melchizedek, king of righteousness. Um, we've got uh, actually king mentioned as well. Um, and we've got David mentioned as well. So a king will be raised unto uh, David, and he would be a righteous branch, um, and therefore a, a righteous king. Um, and if we go now to Jeremiah 33, we have a similar verse. Jeremiah chapter 33 and verse 15. In those days and at that time will I cause the branch of righteousness to grow up unto David, and he shall execute judgment and righteousness in the land. So these are some verses giving us more information about the branch that we read off in Zechariah. We see it's going to be a righteous branch, um, and it's going to be um, linked with with um, David. So we need to now start thinking um, about David in relation to Melchizedek. So to do that, let's go back to well, let's go to again to Psalm 110. Psalm 110 is a psalm of David. And we know that, of course, because it's in the heading of the psalm. And, of course, the Lord Jesus, as we've seen and we've read already, uh, tells us that it's words spoken by David. Now then, verse 4 mentions Melchizedek. We've, we've already read that. So what we ought to be doing is looking for links between Psalm 110 and um context of Melchizedek. So you look for links between uh, the two passages, bearing in mind it's not just for Genesis 14, it's Genesis 15. And there's one striking link which um, is in verse 6 where it says, he shall judge among the heathen. Now, there's more than one word for judge um, in 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 the, in the Old Testament, um, but one place where this word is used also of uh, the nations, or one particular nation, is Genesis chapter 15. So uh, we're going to need to keep a finger in Psalm 110. Um, so we'll just go back to Genesis, uh, Genesis for a moment. We, we, we mentioned briefly before, of course, that um, uh, the captivity of Egypt is spoken of here in Genesis 15. Now, in verse 14 of Genesis 15, we read these words. And also that nation whom they shall serve will I judge. Now, we know that nation is Egypt. The word nation, that same Hebrew as the word heathen. So where it says he shall judge among the heathen in Psalm 110, um, same language is used here. So what, what we can say straight away is that if we want an example of the type of thing that's been spoken of in Psalm 110, which of course ultimately is speaking about when Christ returns and the judgments are carried out in the earth, and the kingdom is established, um, uh, and prior to the kingdom being established, we can uh, 
what happened in Egypt provides us with an example. Egypt is an example of a nation that was judged by God. Now, that's a, a specific link between Psalm 110 and Genesis 14 stroke Genesis 15. Judging among the heathen, judging among the nations, judging a nation of which um, Egypt was one particular example, which is being spoken of here in Genesis chapter 15. Now, when you have a look at um, just have a sort of search through Psalm 110, look out for other links. There is a very um, uh, generally with other passages in scripture uh, so where words first occur. There's a very striking passage with which Psalm 110 links with, and it relates to this context or this the, uh, this uh, Egypt being judged. And it's in Exodus and chapter 15. So we need to leave Genesis behind, go to Exodus chapter 15, while keeping um, um, a finger in Psalm 110, and at the same time changing the slide so it shows on the screen. It's amazing I could do this without using my hands. But. I'll be lost without Sister Carol. Right, okay, here we go. Psalm 110 and Exodus. So let's go to Exodus chapter 15, because this is the song of Moses after the victory of leaving Egypt, of escaping from Egypt. So what we're going to do now is highlight some links between Psalm 110 and Exodus 15. And what we see is that Psalm 110 is drawing on this theme of leaving Egypt. So Psalm 110 verse 1 speaks about my right hand. Um, and which, of course, is, is God's hand. Now, in uh, Exodus 15 and verse 6, we read, Thy right hand, O Yahweh, has become glorious in power. Thy right hand, O Yahweh, hath dashed in pieces the enemy. Then verse 12, Thou stretchest out thy right hand, the earth swallowed them. So you've got the right hand of God mentioned in both passages. Um, verses 1 and uh, 2 of Psalm 110 both mention the enemies. Verse 1, Yahweh said of my Lord, sit thou at my right hand until I make my, thine enemies thy footstool. And then uh, verse 2, Yahweh shall send the rod of thy strength out of Zion, rule thou in the midst of thy enemies. And we've got the enemy mentioned in Exodus 15, verse 6, of course, we know is uh, Egypt. Thy right hand, O Yahweh, has been glorious in power. Thy right hand, O Yahweh, hath dashed in pieces the enemy. And again in verse 9, the enemy said, I will pursue. I will overtake. So we've got the enemy mentioned. Now we've also got a rod mentioned in uh, Psalm 110. Now there was, there's no, the rod is mentioned in Exodus 15, but of course the rod was critical to the children of Israel leaving uh, Egypt and escaping from the Egyptians. And so, for example, um, in uh, Exodus chapter 14 and verse 16, God says to Moses, but lift up thy rod and stretch out thy hand over the sea and divide it. So we've got a rod there mentioned um, in this context of leaving Egypt. Back in uh, Exodus 15 and verse 2, we've got the strength of God. Yahweh is my strength. Um, verse 13 of Exodus 15. Um, uh, thou in thy mercy hast led forth the people which thou hast redeemed. Thou hast guided them in thy strength. And we've got the strength mentioned, God's strength mentioned in Psalm 102 
Psalm 110 and verse 2. And then the other connection is the one we've already looked at back in Genesis 15 and verse 40. So what we would suggest, well, what we see is that Psalm 110 is drawing on the example of a particular nation who was judged that of Egypt and the children of Israel escaping from Egypt. And this provides us um, uh, the judgments upon Egypt um, are a, a type of the way in which the Lord Jesus Christ, the priest of the, after the order of Melchizedek, will judge the nations and deliver his people uh, when he uh, returns to the earth. Well, we see in Psalm 110 um, and verse 1, uh, leaving Exodus behind, it says, The Psalm of David, Yahweh said unto my Lord, sit there at my right hand. So let's now go to look at that passage in Luke chapter 20, which we had read as an introduction to the second talk. Luke chapter 20 and verse 42. And David himself saith in the book of Psalms, the Lord said unto my Lord, sit thou on my right hand till I make thy enemies thy footstool. So that's quotation from Psalm 110, one of many in the New Testament. David therefore calleth him Lord. How is he then his son? Now, normally um, you don't call your son Lord because you're greater than your your son. Here was the David, the king, and yet he's re he's writing uh, of calling a person um, whom um, they knew would would be his son, his descendant. And so uh, the Lord Jesus is challenging them. So well, look, you, you, you talk about the son of David um, uh, being, uh, but how, how come David is talking about uh, calling his son the Lord? Because the point is that this, this, this one who he's talking about, this descendant of David, uh, would be greater than David, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so uh, therefore it was appropriate for David to call him Lord. Now let's go now to Romans in chapter 1, where uh, Paul begins uh, by mentioning right at the beginning of Romans, he talks about David. Yeah, just leave Luke behind for a moment. Paul, uh, chapter 1 and verse 1. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel of God, which he had promised afore by his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, Concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, which was made of the seed of David, according to the flesh. So uh, the Lord, uh, Paul is through this inspired by God is using uh, the fact that David, uh, that the Lord Jesus was descendant of David, the seed of David, uh, to prove that the Lord Jesus was uh, flesh according to the flesh. OK, now then. Um, what we like to do now is go back to Second um, Samuel, and in actual fact, these words here in Romans one, uh, we will suggest, are quoting from Second Samuel seven, where it says, which he had, where at the end of verse one it says, separated unto the gospel of God, and then the beginning of verse two, which he had promised, um, and this provides us now with a, a good way now of going back to uh, look um, at the context in relation to David, which relates to um, which relates to Melchizedek. So let's go back. You might just want to keep a finger in Romans just for a second, just to see the link. Second Samuel chapter 7, first of all. Um, and Second Samuel chapter 7 and verse 28. 
And there we read, and, and of course, this is David speaking after God has spoken through Nathan, through Nathan the prophet. Verse 28, and now, O Lord Yahweh, thou art that God, and thy words be true, and thou hast promised this goodness unto thy servant. Now, what Nathan has been speaking of, of course, is how there, there would be one who would come and sit on the throne of David, um, who would be a descent, the seed of David, um, and who would uh, build a house for the uh, build build a house. And how, for example, verse thirteen, um, he would establish the throne of his king forever. Verse fourteen, I will be his father, and he shall be my son. So here's a prophecy that God gave to David through Nathan the prophet concerning his seed, the seed of David, who would be um, who would build his house and would be the son of God. And the David says, thou hast promised this goodness unto thy servant. Now, as you said, it was Nathan, the prophet, verse two, that spoke to him. Now, just go back to verse Romans one and verse one. At the end of that verse, you got the gospel of God. Um, that's the goodness. Um, and then verse two, which he had promised before by his prophets. So you've got that in that verse 28, that, that promised this goodness unto thy servant. And that had been promised by God through Nathan, uh, the prophet. So we've got a little illusion, a little quote there from the beginning of Romans back to second of Samuel chapter seven. But what we're interested in now is second of Samuel chapter six. Now, some of you will be familiar with this that we're going to look at now. Um, if you're not familiar with these links, um, you're going to find these links, uh, or this, this background here, pretty amazing. So, it's Second Samuel chapter 6. It's David, and he's bringing the ark of God into Zion. And remember, David is king, not a priest. So let's pick out a few verses in Second Samuel chapter 6. First of all, verse 12. And it was told King David, saying, The Lord Yahweh hath blessed the house of Obed-Edom. And all that pertaineth unto him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom into the city of David with gladness. And it was so that when they that bear the ark of Yahweh had gone six paces, he, that's David, sacrificed oxen and fatlings. This is the king. But he's sacrificing oxen and fatlings. Why didn't he get a priest to do it? But he didn't. It's David sacrificing oxen and fatlings. Verse 14, and David danced before Yahweh with all his might, and David was girded with a linen ephod. He's wearing an ephod. What's the, well, what's the significance of that? We'll just keep a finger in 2 Samuel. Just go back to, for example, Exodus chapter 28. Uh, Exodus chapter 28, um, and here we read of the garments of the, of the priest, and in verse 6 of Exodus 28, we read, and they shall make the ephod of gold, of blue, and of purple, of scarlet, and fine twine linen with cunning work. So it's not the same design, the same material exactly as David was wearing, but he was wearing an ephod. What David was wearing was a garment associated with the priest. But here we've got a king, King David, and he's girded with a garment of the priest, an ephod. Okay, leaving uh, Exodus behind, let's go back to Second Samuel 6, verse 17. And they brought in the ark of Yahweh and set it in his place in the midst of the tabernacle that David had pitched for it. Now, this isn't the uh, the usual tabernacle 
that still existed. This is when David himself, he's, he's made his own tabernacle. And he's king. He's not even priest, but he's made his a tabernacle. Verse 18. And as soon as David had made an end of offering burnt offerings and peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of Yahweh of hosts. Now, um, what we see here is, again, he's, he's making offerings, as mentioned again, um, associated, of course, with the priests. But notice also now, we've got reference here to peace offerings, and that reminds us of Melchizedek, king of peace. We also see here that it says he blessed the people in the name of Yahweh of hosts. Now, that should remind us of Melchizedek, because the point, of course, which is emerging here, David is king. He's not trying to usurp or become a priest like, uh, according to the, the um, order of Aaron, like Isaiah would, done, or would do. But David is um, he's uh, echoing um, Melchizedek, and he's what he's doing is an acknowledgement or pointing forward to the greater uh, king, the, the, his, his seed, who would be both king and priest. That's what David is, is, is doing here. So keep a thing in Second Samuel. Go back to Genesis. Genesis uh, chapter 14. And verse 19. Um, and it says, and he blessed him. That's Melchizedek. Blessed him and said, blessed be Abram. Of the Most High God. So um, Melchizedek blesses Abraham. And that's what David's doing in 2 Samuel 6, verse 18. It says he blessed the people. He's blessing. Just as Melchizedek blessed Abraham, David is blessing the people. Um, and then, um, in uh, just go back to verse 18 of in, in Genesis 14, it says, And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought forth bread and wine. Now, one of those is provided by David, because in verse 19 of 2 Samuel 6, we read, and he dealt among all the people, even among the whole multitude of people, as well as to the women as men, to everyone a cake of bread. So both Melchizedek and David gave out bread. Um, in the English, in verse 19, it also talks about um, a flagon of wine, but wine's in italics, and uh, according to concordance, the word flagon there is more to do with a cake of raisins. So I, I, we can't really make a parallel there, uh, on the, at least on the basis of that, between uh, the wine in verse 18 of, of Genesis 14. But what we can say is that just like Melchizedek um, brought forth and gave out bread, so um, David did as well. So we can see the point, can't we, um, brethren and sisters? And that is. That here we have David the king um, emulating um, Melchizedek um, in order to point forward to the greater son of David, the Lord Jesus, who would be both king and priest. So David certainly understood stood the significance of, Mel, of Melchizedek um, in this regard. So that's an amazing thing that's going on there. So let's leave Genesis behind now. We go back to Second Samuel chapter six, because if you think that's amazing, um, unfortunately, not everybody agrees with that, or at least agreed with that. And one person who didn't agree with that was um, Michael. So in Second Samuel chapter six and verse 16, we read. 
And as the ark of Yahweh came into the city of David, Michael, Saul's daughter, looked through a window and saw King David leaping and dancing before Yahweh, and she despised him in her heart. So she, she certainly didn't see or at least appreciate um, the significance of what David was doing. She despised him in her heart. Then go to verse 20. It says, then David returned to bless his household and Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David. Actually, I said uh, leave Genesis behind just to mention. I, I'll just read the verse in Genesis um, 14 and verse 17. We have a meeting there. It says, and the king of Sodom went out to meet Abraham to meet him. That is Abraham. So there's a meeting that takes place there. But um, so um, um, Michael comes out to uh, uh, speak with um, David. Uh, we'll just read the verse again, verse 20. Then David returned to bless his household, and Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, How glorious was the king of Israel today, who uncovered himself today in the eyes of the handmaids of his servants, as one of the vain fellows, shamelessly uncovering himself. So those are the words of Michael. Now look what happened to Michael, verse 23. Therefore, Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no child unto the day of her death. And how does that relate to the Melchizedek context? Well, remember what God said to Abraham in Genesis 15. Look now toward heaven and tell the stars if thou be able to number them. And he said unto him, so shall thy seed be. But Michael um, was going to was not going to uh, have any children, let alone descendants uh, as a multitude. Because she despised David and she despised David in his uh, efforts to um, uh, bring Melchizedek to mind uh, and the great Melchizedek, the Lord Jesus Christ. But notice now going back to David. You know, we said that David, we've seen that David called the Lord Jesus his Lord. And to do that needs humility. To write like that, we might take it for granted. But if you look at the writings of kings of old, not just in Israel, you know, like in, in the, in, of Israel, of Judah, but in, in the world, they, they wouldn't generally talk like that. They talk about their own greatness. So to talk about future son and call him their Lord, it just it was, wouldn't do that. But David had, so we shouldn't underestimate the humility of David. Look how that comes out in verse 21. David said unto Michael, it was before Yahweh which chose me before thy father and before all his house to appoint me ruler over the people of Yahweh, over Israel. Therefore will I play before Yahweh. And I will yet be more vile than this. I will be base in my own sight. And of the maidservants which thou hast spoken of, of them shall I be had in honour, because uh, they knew he was godly, of course. But look at that. He would be more vile uh, and, and even more, make himself even more base uh, in his own sight from a human point of view. Right, bearing that in mind, um, we're going to need to keep a finger in Second Samuel just for a moment. Let's go back now to Luke chapter 20. Right then, let's look at what um, 
the Lord Jesus said after he had spoken about uh, Psalm, David and Psalm 100, quoted from Psalm 110. First of all, verse 45 of Luke 20. Then in the audience of all the people, he said unto his disciples. I just noticed that phrase, all the people, because that's a very common phrase in scripture, but it's just worth noting that occurs in 2 Samuel 6, verse 19. He dealt among all the people and then at the end of verse 19 so all the people departed everyone to his house verse 46 beware of the scribes which desire to walk in long robes and love greetings in the markets and the highest seats in the synagogues and the chief rooms of feast. can you imagine can you imagine a scribe doing what David did? Can you imagine a, a scribe uncovering himself um, to the extent that he did? Can you ex imagine him um, going about to make himself vile in his own sight, to abase himself? And what I think the Lord Jesus is, is doing here is making a, a contrast between the humility of David and the scribes, who they will uncover themselves. In fact, they walk in long robes. Um, and they wouldn't abase themselves. They prefer the highest seats in the synagogues and they prefer the chief room. So what we're seeing here is the contrast between, on the one hand, the scribes and the way that David um, had behaved when he brought the ark into um, Zion. So, um, uh, brothers and sisters, what we've seen there then is how um, David um, himself certainly appreciated the significance of Melchizedek. He was inspired to write Psalm 110, which speaks about Melchizedek, and he chose to emulate him, um, as we've read of um, in uh, 2nd of Samuel, uh, chapter 6. Now, we've looked at various aspects of Melchizedek, and, of course, uh, we haven't, by any stretch of the imagina uh, imagination, looked at uh, or covered, touched on all topics, let alone looked at them properly as they all as they all deserve. So Psalm 10 is quoted many times um, in the in the New Testament in the New Testament. But we do need to um, now uh, bring some of our thoughts uh, uh, begin to draw them to a close. And so just to sort of perhaps related to ourselves and to the, the, the broader context of the purpose of God. So let's go back to Genesis chapter one, verse 26. Here's the purpose of God. Genesis 1, verse 26. And God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over the cattle and over all the earth. And over every creeping, creeping, creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. That's the purpose of God. He wants the people who um, will uh, be in his image and his likeness, just like the priest was supposed to reflect his glory and speak his words. And he also wants them to, wants them to have dominion, just like a king. So he was looking for Adam and Eve to be like kings and priests, being in the image and likeness of God as a priest and uh, having dominion like a king. That was always the purpose of God, right from Genesis uh, chapter 1. Then if you come to um, Exodus chapter 19, Exodus chapter 19, verses 5 and 6. 
Now, therefore, if you will obey my voice indeed and keep my covenant, then you shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be, un, un, be unto me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that thou shalt speak unto the children of Israel. This was the purpose of God for his people in the end, to be a kingdom of priests. Now, of course, under the law, it was just the, the priests were one tribe and the, the, the kings were of another. But this was the, God's ultimate purpose, to have a kingdom of priests. Notice what he says at the end of verse 5. Um, for all the earth is mine. And we think back to Genesis 14, how uh, both uh, Melchizedek and Abram say of God that he is possessor of heaven and earth. Now let's go to First Peter chapter 2. First of Peter uh, chapter 2, verse 5. He also, as lively stones, are built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Wherefore also it is contained in the scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion the chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he that believeth on him shall not be confounded. Unto you therefore which believe he is precious, but unto them which be disobedient, the stone which the builders disallow, the same is made ahead of the corner. A stone of stumbling and a rock of offence, even to them which stumble at the word, being disobedient, whereunto also they were appointed. But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood. The royal uh, as a king and, and then the priesthood. It's talking here about um, uh, the building, well, that, about building and being stones. What's that got to do with um, king and priest? Remember Zechariah? Um, chapter 6, it says of the uh, king priest, verse 13, even he shall build the temple of Yahweh. That's true of the spiritual temple, which believers will be a part, and of course the actual physical uh, building as well. Now let's turn to Revelation chapter 1, verse 5. And from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead and the prince of the kings of the earth, Unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood, and hath made us kings and priests unto God his Father. To him be glory and dominion for ever and ever. Amen. Well, that takes us back to Genesis, doesn't it? Really, it's talking about um, glory, which relates to uh, the image and the likeness, and dominion. Uh, yes, this also has to do with uh, strength and so forth. But we can we can link it with that verse back there in Genesis. God's purpose. Uh, state, as stated back in Genesis 1 verse 26 will be fulfilled when he has the earth full of people who are both kings and priests finally final verse or a couple of verses so look at this brothers let's just take this now and apply and uh, and uh, relate it to ourselves we're looking hoping to be kings and priests in the kingdom but how can we be a king uh, or how can we be a priest? Never mind a king. How can we be a priest? Because um, we're not um, even of Israel, most of us, let alone in terms of being natural born Jews, let alone being of the tribe of Levi, let alone being of the descendant of Aaron. So verse nine, <clears throat> and they sung a new song saying, thou art worthy. To take the book and to open the seals thereof, for thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood, 
out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation, not just the Levites, not just Israel, every kindred and tongue and people and nation has made us unto our God, kings and priests, and we shall reign on you. So, brothers and sisters, we, we look forward to being kings and priests, not after the order of Aaron, but after the order of Melchizedek, reigning with the Lord Jesus Christ, who truly is the king of righteousness and king of peace. Let's begin by turning to Psalm 110 uh, as a starting point initially, because clearly this is a very important um, psalm. It's a very short psalm, but of course it's quoted many times um, in the New Testament. Um, it's a psalm of David, as we're told in the title, and uh, in verse 4 we read, uh, Yahweh hath sworn and will not repent, Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, as we've just read in Hebrews chapter uh, 7, this is um, um, talking, of course, about the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's talking about an order. And in Hebrews 7, we also read about uh, the order of Aaron. And so this is a different type of priesthood to the priesthood which was established under the law, where the priests were um, the sons of Aaron, of the tribe of Levi. Um, and in the uh, studies uh, this afternoon, uh, God willing, we're going to consider aspects of Melchizedek, or perhaps what we should say really is we're going to consider the Lord Jesus Christ um, as foreshadowed in, the, in Melchizedek, because, of course, the significance of Melchizedek um, although he was clearly a, um, a great man, is that, of course, he points forward to the Lord Jesus Christ. So uh, let's turn forward um, to Hebrews, because we'll be going back to Psalm 110 and also, of course, to Genesis later. But let's go back to Hebrews um, and Hebrews chapter 5, just to pick up what the other writer there says um, um, initially about um, Melchizedek. Verse 4 of Hebrews chapter 5, we read, And no man taketh this honour unto himself, that is the honour of the priesthood, but he that is called of God, as was Aaron. So also Christ glorified not himself to be made a high priest, but he that said unto him, Thou art my son, to the, today have I begotten thee. As he saith also in another place, Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So there's quotation from that verse, which we've just read in Psalm 110. So these, this verse clearly show, these verses clearly show that that verse which we read, or read in Psalm 110 does indeed apply to the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Lord Jesus is priest, not on the basis um, that he is a, a descendant of Aaron, because, of course, he is not of that tribe. Um, he's not a descendant of Aaron, not, not even a member of the tribe of Levi, but the Lord Jesus 
which is the tribe of Judah. But instead, he is a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now let's turn to uh, chapter 7, uh, which we read as an introduction, um, and let's uh, read verse 4. Now consider how great this man was, unto whom even the patriarch Abraham gave the tenth of the spoils. Now this verse is the basis uh, for our overall subject title um, this afternoon. Um, and it really does it is um, a command, is a challenge to us to us to to look at Melchizedek. Clearly, it's a very um, uh, important subject. It's very deep, um, and and although very few verses are actually mentioned Melchizedek, speak about him, in, particularly in the Old Testament, um, he is a very important figure. And we're commanded here to consider how great this man was. So that's really what we're, uh, we're about with our subject this afternoon. Just consider Melchizedek, just consider how great he was. Why is he so great? Um, and what is the significance um, of him? Now, as a starting point, then, we'd just like to put, put up on the screen um, the, uh, uh, the, to show the meaning of, or to show how this word great is used elsewhere. It's just a simple screen, um, and I just thought it was worth putting this on screen because um, it's, it's a kind of a foundation point for um, uh, our talk this afternoon. And I just wanted to make it clear um, uh, where we got this point from. Um, and when you look up the word great in the concordance, um, you're surprised, at least I was surprised, to find that it was actually quite a, a rare word. And it's only used in one other place, this particular Greek word, palikos. It's used in uh, Galatians uh, chapter 6 and verse 11. Ye see how large a letter I have written unto you with my own, own hand. And of course, these are the words of the Apostle Paul. And in, he is speaking here. I don't think about the length of his letter, but about the size of his writing, uh, the actual letters he was writing, which um, he says were large. So we've got a comparison then uh, to be made between, on the one hand, Melchizedek, and on the other, the size of the writing of the Apostle Paul, at least when he was writing to the Galatians. So we are, our um, challenge then initially is to uh, have a consider this uh, why it is that um, this comparison is being made between the greatness of Melchizedek and the greatness and size of writing of the Apostle Paul um, in Galatians. So um, we'll now have a look at Galatians let's turn to the book of Galatians and having looked at uh, read just chapter 6 and verse 11 and we're now uh, let's just go through to Galatians go to Galatians chapter 3 initially because when we see this um, this uh, that link between Galatians and Hebrews that we just identified um, perhaps the first thing we should do is to say okay well what are the links are there any links between Galatians, the, the book of Galatians, the letter to the Galatians, and um, what's said concerning Melchizedek um, in Hebrews. And there were one or two uh, specific um, uh, sort of word links, if you like, between the two passages. For example, uh, 
Um, in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 9, it says, So they, then they which be of faith are blessed with faithful Abraham. So we, we read there about people being blessed in Abraham. And of course, um, back over in Hebrews and chapter 7 and verse 1, for example, um, we read, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. So we read there of Abraham being blessed. And again, we read of that in verse 6. Um, at the end of verse 6, and blessed him that had the promises. So we read of um, Abraham being blessed there in Hebrews. That's And we read of a similar thing here in Galatians, or at least those who are blessed with Abraham, Abraham by implication, um, being blessed. And in that Hebrews 7 verse 6, we also read of Abraham and the promises, promises plural. And in fact, um, the only two places you find Abraham and the word promises in the plural um, are in are found in Hebrews and in Galatians, in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 16. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made, he saith not unto seeds as of many, but as of one unto thy seed, which is Christ. So there are one or two uh, verbal links between Galatians and, and the passage in Hebrews, which concerns Melchizedek. And um, we'll look at another one a, a little bit later on. But we still really need to address this uh, question. What is the what is the significance of um, the fact that the greatness of Melchizedek uh, parallels the greatness of the size of the writing of Paul to the Galatians? Well, the answer um, lies, I think, in a, linking it with Habakkuk. If we just go to verse 11 of Galatians chapter 3, um, and then what we're going to say now, of course, is fairly, is, is well known, so you may well have come across this before. But in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 11, we read, But that no man is justified by the law in the sight of God, it is evident, for the just shall live by faith. So we've got a link back there to Habakkuk. So let's turn to Habakkuk. Now, what we're trying to do at this point um, is try to establish why Paul was writing in large letters, full stop. Just put Melchizedek to one side just for a moment. Why was Paul, why does it mention, we know that it's probably to do with his eyesight and so on, from a natural point of view, but what's the spiritual significance? Why does he mention that he's writing in a large hand? So Habakkuk chapter 2 and verse 4, we read, Behold, his soul which is lifted up is not upright in him, but the just shall live by his faith. So that's where that quotation that we've just read in Galatians is taken from. Of course, this isn't, Galatians isn't the only place, of course, where this verse is quoted. So we've got Paul quoting from Habakkuk. Now, if you look in the context, we have a verse which gives us um, a clue um, or an explanation as to why Paul, through the Spirit, was inspired to mention the fact that he was writing in large letters. Habakkuk chapter 2 and verse 2. And Jahweh answered me and said, Write the vision and make it plain upon tables that he may run that readeth it. 
So Habakkuk was commanded to, to write in a plain way, so plain, so clear, that people could run that read it. it would show them what to do. They could just look at this, um, what was written, and straight away know, right, we've got, we've got to run. And they would be able to read it um, while they were moving along. And the implication, of course, is that if you were going to do that, it would have to be um, ideally in large, uh, large letters. Well, now having seen that, let's go back to Galatians and chapter 2. Because there's a couple of verses in Galatians which speak about running. First of all, Galatians chapter 2 and verse 2. And I went up by revelation and communicated unto them that gospel which I preach among the Gentiles, but privately to them which were of no reputation, lest by any means I should run or had run in vain. Now here, Paul is speaking about himself about making sure that um, his running that he'd already done um, had not been um, in vain. But now let's go to chapter five, where we have a, a connection, which is um, a verse, which is, uh, I think, even more relevant for what we're looking at um, this afternoon. Because in Revelation chapter five and verse seven, Paul says, ye did run well. Who did hinder you? that you should not obey the truth. So the Galatians were not running well. They had been, but they were no longer running well. So what are you going to do to make them run better? Well, you're going to make sure that they have a clear, plain message, as we read in Habakkuk. And I th we would suggest that's the significance um, in, in uh, Paul saying in Galatians chapter 6, verse 11, you see how large a letter I have written unto you. See how large my writing is. It's clear. It's unambiguous. You can't miss what I've written. You should be able to run as a consequence of reading that. So the next question then is, why were they not running well? What was it that Paul was writing about in such large letters, um, or at least in spirit, if he hadn't actually written every single word himself, but... Why was he uh, writing in such a plain uh, and large, uh, in large letters to the Galatians? What was the problem? Why weren't they running well? What was the advice he was giving to them to enable them to run? Let's go back to Galatians chapter 3 and verse 1. O foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you that ye should not obey the truth? before whose eyes Jesus Christ hath been evidently set forth crucified among you. This only will I learn of you. Receive ye the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith. And this is the problem. This is why they were not running well, because they had been running well, but now they turned from the hearing of faith back um, uh, or to the works of the law. They were looking to the law uh, and its works to it, try to establish their own righteousness. And that was the problem which they had. Now, clearly, that links with mm, the theme of uh, Melchizedek, which um, we'll, be, we'll be looking at. And we can uh, and we'll be, begin to see uh, the parallel between uh, Galatians, uh, the large handwriting Galatians 
and um, the greatness of Melchizedek. So here's the Apostle Paul writing in large letters, trying to make things plain so they would start running again. And what, one of the things that he's having to do is point out to them um, and remind them that they can uh, that righteousness comes not from the works of the law, but through the hearing of faith. And in verse 6, he says the, these words, even as Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. So Abraham, of course, came was before the law of Moses. Nevertheless, he had uh, righteousness accounted or imputed to him, and it was on the basis of his faith. It was on the basis of what he believed. Now, this quotation is taken from the book of Genesis and chapter 15, and that takes us right back into the Melchizedek context. Let's go back then to Genesis chapter 15. Genesis chapter 15 and verse 6. And he believed in Yahweh and he counted it to him for righteousness. So the faith which Abraham had, God was prepared to count that as though it were righteousness. Of course, this is the marvelous way in which God has, uh, despite the fact that we are incapable of obeying his commands perfectly, nevertheless, this is the way in which God has um, enabled a righteousness to be counted uh, to us, uh, uh, imputed to us on the basis of our faith. Now, of course, that faith, as we know, has to be a living faith and that, and the faith is made living by doing works. And of course, uh, Abraham was later tested in this regard when he was commanded to offer up Isaac. But we see here that his faith was counted for righteousness. Now, this is Genesis chapter 15. And of course, Melchizedek is spoken of in Genesis chapter 14. But note um, verse 1 of Genesis 15. After these things, the word of Yahweh came unto Abraham in a vision, saying. So that those words connect what uh, Genesis 15 with what has gone before. So when we think of the Melchizedek context in Genesis, uh, in the book of Genesis, and we have to think not just about Genesis chapter 14, but Genesis chapter 15 as well. And in fact, there's a just note one link between these two passages while we're in verse one. Uh, the Hebrew for shield is the Hebrew word magen, and there in verse chapter 14 and verse 20, we've got the word delivered there, and blessed be the most high God, which hath delivered thine enemies into thy hand. And according to the concordance, that is the uh, Hebrew word magan, which is related to this word in verse one. So there's one little link uh, between Genesis chapter 14 and Genesis chapter 15. But of course, there's another fundamental connection between these two passages. Um, and that's with the verse that we've just we've read, first of all, in, in chapter 15, verse six. And he believed in Yahweh and he counted it to him for righteousness. And of course, we've got righteousness in Genesis chapter 15, except um, it's um, actually encoded in the name of Melchizedek. In, uh, for example, verse 18, and 
Mel, uh, well, in verse 18, and Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought forth bread and wine, and he was the priest of the most high God. But just read the next two verses. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abraham of the most high God, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be the most high God, which hath delivered thy enemies into thy hand. And he gave him tithes of all. Now, these are the only three verses in Genesis 14 which speak of Melchizedek. And yet he is a great man. Um, so it's, it's a remarkable way in the way with the which scripture uh, in, the, in the future scripture brings out so much about Melchizedek, about whom so much so little is actually said of him in terms of uh, the number of words um, in this chapter. But what we're particularly wishing to know at this point is this word Melchizedek. Um, and um, as we know, if we just go back to uh, Hebrews chapter, keep a finger in, in Genesis, but just to remind ourselves, let's go back to. Hebrews and chapter 7, um, just to remind ourselves and in case we we're new to this, Hebrews chapter 7 and uh, verse 2, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being by interpretation king of righteousness and after that also king of Salem, which is king of peace. And the meaning of the name Melchizedek is king of righteousness is made up of two words, one which means king and the other which means righteousness. And so there in that word Melchizedek in Genesis 14 is the word righteousness. Um, and um, that links with Genesis chapter 15 and verse uh, 6. Um, so let's just uh, uh, keep a finger in Genesis. And on our way back, uh, using other fingers, is let's just call in at 2 Kings chapter 5 and verse 21. Um, just going to make a little point here, which um, may link with what we said about running. I say may because we haven't actually got running mentioned in uh, in, in the Melchizedek context. But um, if you just go to Second Kings chapter five and verse twenty-one, you're right into the middle of the context here. But we read these words. Uh, this is to do with Naaman um, and uh, Elisha. So Gehazi followed after Naaman, and when Naaman saw him running after him, he lighted down from the chariot to meet him and uh, said, it is all well. Now, here we've got Gehazi following Naaman, and we see that in order to follow him, he's actually running. Now, the same Hebrew word for following occurs back in Genesis 14. So we just leave Kings behind and, and go back to Genesis chapter 14, um, because in verse 14, uh, we read, and when Abraham heard that his brother was taken captive, he armed his trained servants, born in his own house, 318, and pursued them. And that's the same word as followed unto Dan. Now, clearly he wasn't running, given the distance involved. Um, there would be no animals, but they were pursuing. They were going at speed. Um, and that, and the, the same word is also mentioned in verse 15. So, no, we haven't got running mentioned in Genesis 14, but we've certainly got pursuing um, mentioned and if it was a short distance they had been going then they could have uh, pursued uh, followed um, by uh, by running so how what we've seen so far well what we're still really doing is trying to establish this link between um, uh, Galatians and uh, Melchizedek and uh, what we've seen is that Galatians, the, there was a problem in Galatians. They weren't running well because they were trying to achieve righteousness by the works of the law rather than through faith. 
Um, and now we've gone back to uh, uh, Genesis chapter 14 and 15, where it speaks about Abraham having his faith is accounted uh, for righteousness. And uh, we've looked at Melchizedek and seen that Melchizedek, that even the very name uh, speaks of um, righteousness. So we've got a sort of parallel between the two passages. But of course, Melchizedek means king of righteousness. So what we need to do now is think a little bit about uh, those two things. And one of the standout passages where king and righteousness comes together is in Psalm 72. So let's go now to Psalm 72. In Psalm 72, um, this psalm um, is speaking um, um, about the Lord Jesus Christ with um, uh, Solomon as a kind of foresh foreshadowing um, the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, the psalm is uh, headed um, a Psalm 4 or of Solomon. Now, personally, I think this isn't critical to the, what we're going to say next about the king righteousness, but it is important because it's at the head of the psalm. Um, personally, I think it is written by Solomon, um, and um, it's written in the third person about himself, just as the Lord Jesus sometimes spoke in the third person about himself. Um, I think verse um, 9 to 15 uh, says, and he shall live. And we ask the question, well, who shall live? The verse in verse 20, uh, in verse 20, the psalm ends. The prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. And I wonder if that actually this psalm, purpose of this psalm was uh, a gentle way of informing people that David had fallen asleep. Um, and that explains why David's prayers had ended. But of course, Psalm 72 is not a psalm of mourning. Perhaps that's reflected too in the fact we read of no mourning uh, when David fell asleep. Of course, he, there would have been mourning. But, um, but be that as it may, Psalm 20, 72 is speaking about ultimately the Lord Jesus Christ as the king. And the king of uh, and and his righteousness. So, verse one, Psalm seventy-two, give the king thy judgments, O God, and thy righteousness unto the king's son. So we see there righteousness spoken of in relation to the king. It's speaking um, of the Lord Jesus Christ ultimately, and Melchizedek foreshadowed um, the Lord Jesus in this respect. In this respect, uh, because his name means king of righteousness um, and truly this psalm is uh, linked strongly with Melchizedek because then in verse 3 we read um, the uh, mountain shall bring peace to the people and the little hills by righteousness so we've got peace there mentioned in connection with righteousness and of course that also relates to Melchizedek who was also we're told king of Salem and say the word Salem, the sh uh, Shalom is Shalom, and it means peace. So the Lord G, uh, so um, we have righteousness and peace connected here in verse three. And then in verse seven, we read, in his days shall the righteous flourish and abundance of peace, so long as the moon endures. So again, another verse which helps to show that this Psalm 72 is speaking about the Lord Jesus in relation to um, as, as foreshadowed by Melchizedek. Then in verse 8, we read, he shall have dom uh, dominion also from sea to sea and from the river unto the ends of the earth. Now that um, links back with our Melchizedek context 
but in Genesis chapter 15, where um, in Genesis 15 and verse 18, we read, um, in the same day, Yahweh made a covenant with Abram, saying, unto thy seed have I given this land from the river of Egypt unto the great river, the river Euphrates, which is almost certainly the river being uh, referred to there in verse 8 of Psalm 72. And finally, in Psalm 72, in verse 17, um, we read, His name shall endure forever, his name shall be continued as long as the sun, and men shall be blessed in him. All nations shall call him blessed. Blessed be Yahweh, God, the God of Israel, who only doeth wondrous things, and blessed be his glorious name forever. Now, um, we read there of him, the king being blessed, and we read of God being blessed, of course, that's what we find in Genesis 14. Um, in verse 19 of Genesis 14, we read, And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abraham, the most high God, possessor of heaven and earth. So that's Abraham being blessed. And then verse 20, And blessed be the most high God. Um, so that is God uh, being blessed. So uh, when we think of righteousness and the king, um, psalm 72 um, is, is a good psalm to come to, and it clearly relates to Melchizedek, not just because of that, but also because of what is said with regard to peace and the way it's linked in with righteousness. But there's something else that we need to note in Psalm 72, and that's in back in verse 1. We've already read it, but it says, Give the king thy judgments, O God, and thy righteousness unto the king's son. And that's really important to remember, of course. That the, when we were speaking of righteousness, it's not man's righteousness uh, as such, it's God's righteousness. What makes Melchizedek great is not that he was he was perfect, he was righteous, but that he his name, um, and of course what he did in his life, spoke of the righteousness of God, God's righteousness. Remember that we, we remember the words of the Lord Jesus when he said, um, to uh, someone who was speaking, to, who called him good, he said, the Lord Jesus said, why callest thou me good? There is none more good, but there is none good. There is none good, but one, that is God. Now, of course, what, that, that doesn't mean to say that people cannot be good. Joseph of Arimathea uh, was called a good man in Luke 23. But the Lord Jesus is making sure this person understands that the, if any goodness the Lord Jesus had, he had it. Because of God, the goodness he had came from God. And that is the same for um, ourselves. The righteous, any righteousness which we hope to, which we have imputed to us, is not our own righteousness. Ultimately, it's God's righteousness which has been imputed um, to us. But let's just turn now to Isaiah and chapter 51, where we have Abraham mentioned and righteousness. Um, so in the beginning of verse one says, hearken to me, ye that follow after righteousness. And then verse two, look unto Abraham, your father, and unto Sarah that bear you. Of course, Abraham provides us with an example of how to obtain or have righteousness imputed to us. But then note verse, the emphasis in verse five, the beginning of the verse, my righteousness is near. The end of verse six, and my righteousness shall not be um, abolished. Verse 8, for the moth shall eat them up like a garment and the worm shall eat them like wool, but my righteousness shall be forever. So we see that the emphasis is on God's 
righteousness. Now, of course, we don't have righteousness as part of our very being at the present time. Uh, the faithful have righteousness imputed to them on the basis of their faith, their living faith, of course, just as Abraham had faith imputed to him. But it, there's an important verse in this regard in Psalm 24. Let's just go to Psalm 24 and verse 5. This is talking about those who are found worthy at the judgment seat. And in Psalm 24 and verse 5, we read, He shall receive the blessing from Yahweh and righteousness from the God of his salvation. So when a person um, is found worthy at the judgment seat, they will truly receive the blessing. And primarily, of course, that's talking about the forgiveness of sins, amongst other things. And they will, they will receive righteousness. They will be given righteousness. So they, it will no longer be imputed to them. They, they will actually have righteousness. They will have, uh, and they will be made incorruptible. They will be given immortality. Then truly they will be righteous. The righteousness they will have, they will have is God's righteousness, which has been given to them. Now let's go to Romans chapter five. We'll just bring up a, a, a verse, um, a screen uh, shot um, again. And look at Romans chapter five and verse one. This is, uh, if you haven't got this marked up, it's a, um, it's a good one to mark up uh, at some stage um, it, with regard to Melchizedek. Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So it speaks here of being justified, which is like the verb for righteousness, made righteous. Right, being made righteous by faith. And the righteousness links with Melchizedek. He was king of righteousness. We have peace with God. Melchizedek was the king of Salem, the king of peace. And then the word Christ um, relates to, of course, Christ being anointed as the uh, and that is to be king so that's a useful verse to bear in mind when we're thinking about um uh melchizedek so um uh, now let's turn to romans chapter 5 and verse 21 where we read that as sin hath reigned unto death even so <clears throat> might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by jesus christ our lord so before we were baptized, sin was the king. Sin reigned. But once we're in Christ, then uh, grace reigns through righteousness. And so what we then should try to do is serve righteousness rather than be um, a servant to sin. Uh, and as we read in verse 18 of Romans chapter 6, it says, Being then made free from sin, ye became the servants of righteousness. So if we truly want to um, take hold of the teaching of Melchizedek, in particular in relation to being king of righteousness, we have to try to make sure that righteousness um, is the king in our life, that we're not serving sin, but that we are truly serving righteousness. Now let's go back then leaving righteousness behind uh, at least uh, for the time being and go back to hebrews um, and this time chapter 7 and verse 18 hebrews chapter 7 and verse 18 
For there is verily a, a disannulling of the commandment going before for the weakness and unprofitableness thereof. So we see then that um, the, the law um, was weak. But of course, the law was weak, uh, not because of the law itself, but because of the weakness of the flesh. And Galatians chapter, uh, Galatians speaks of this. For example, if we go to Galatians chapter 4 um, and verse 9, we read, But now, after that ye have known God, or rather are known of God, how turn ye again to the weak and beggarly elements? Well, until you desire again to be in bondage, in the words of the works of the, the law. So the law then was weak. And that's the point oh, because of the weakness of the flesh, we should say. Um, and and that's the point that's being made back that in there in that Melchizedek context in Hebrews chapter seven. So this is just picked up another theme that Paul talks about in Galatians. He talks about um, uh, righteousness and how that, uh, that is imputed by faith. Um, and also he talks about the weakness of the law. Now, how does that relate to Melchizedek? Well, let's go back to Hebrews chapter 7 and to a key verse in verse 12. Now, when you read what brethren have written about this in, in their books on, uh, on, this, on Hebrews, they all seem to make this point. In fact, during the Bible school readings discussion, I can't remember who it was, but a brother made this point uh, during uh, the week when we were discussing this. It may have been Brother Matt. I, Baines, I can't remember who exactly it was, but Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 12. Now, if we didn't know about this first, we, we said, well, why is the priesthood changed? We'd say, well, look, the law had to be replaced by the new covenant. The priest was, uh, the teaching concerning the priest was part of that law, so the priesthood had to change. But it's not like that at all. Verse 12, for the priesthood being changed, there is made of necessity a change also of the law. So we see then how fundamental the order of Melchizedek is in relation to the law and the weakness of the law and the, and the law in regard with regard to the, the weakness of the flesh and the way that man cannot obey that law. A new priesthood had to be brought in. And then as a consequence of that, there was of necessity, a change had to be made also of the law. So why, how, how when we think of Galatians and the, the, the size of the writing, uh, that Paul used and the greatness of Melchizedek. What's the significance? Well, Melchizedek is writ large, like the writing of Paul, to testify like Paul about with regard to the righteousness by faith and the need for a new covenant to replace the law that is the old covenant. Right, well now let's go on a new tack. Now let's go back to Genesis chapter 14. In Genesis chapter 14, of course, uh, we, we know uh, the record here, but in Genesis 14, we read of uh, various kings who uh, uh, attack uh, the land. And we, we'd just like to note one in particular, that's Kedor Laoma in verse 1. came to pass in the days of Amraphel, king of Shina, Arach, king of Elasa, Kedor Laoma, king of Elam. Now, this K.O. Dilema, he's, he's the, the key man, because in verse four, it says that they served uh, K.O. Dilema um, as opposed to the other kings. So he was in the lead. He was the one um, that they had to um, serve. Um, and, for example, in verse 17, uh, after the, the victory, 
he's the one that is named the slaughter of Kedoleoma and of the kings. So this man, Kedoleoma, the, the king of Elam, is the key person. Now, what we'd like to do now is just very quickly make some points about Elam. Now, Elam was a very important territory. Um, it was a little empire in its own right uh, uh, over there in what is today southwestern um, Iran. So we, when we read of this man, Kedalaoma, coming to, um, and being defeated by Abraham, it just shows just how great the victory was. These weren't just a few brigands coming down from the hills. This was a major power that had entered into uh, the land coming from Elam. And around the time of Abraham, um, we read this concerning the Elamites. Um, under the Sokomars, that's the ground visitor leaders in um, um, Elam, um, one uh, archaeologist has written, particularly those of the late 19th and early centuries BC, roughly around the time of Abraham, the prestige and influence of Elam throughout Western Asia was unprecedented. Now, the, the thing to take from this is just how great the victory was that Abraham and those trained servants with him and the others who helped him, just how great that victory was. It was an amazing victory um, that he had, of course, with God's help. And of course, the Elamites are mentioned later. We read here, or we read in Jeremiah of the bow of Elam, and the Elamites are known, were known for their um, skill at using uh, the bow and arrow. Here's um, a relief showing an Elamite with his quiver of arrows. Um, and this is the um, remains of uh, the palace of Darius in Susa, which was in Elam, because it's much later than Abraham now, but this is um, the archaeological re remains of, the, of, of Susa. And bear in mind, in Daniel, um, Elam is referred to as a province. So we, we must, we can't, what's in, one thing we like to note is that we can't, ref, when we read the El, word Elam, don't just think, oh, that's another word for Persia. It's, it's, a, it's a province. And there's, there's Persia, there's Elam, and of course there's Media um, as well. Um, and the location of uh, uh, Susa, the, the location, where, location where Elam was, where they came, where the leader came to attack uh, uh, those in the, the land of Canaan. It's the modern um, province of, I of Iran uh, today, uh, where Elam was located, was is Khuzestan, uh, province of Khuzestan. And this is one of many provinces in uh, Iran, but you can see it located there um, in the southwest of, Iran, of, uh, of uh, Iran. Now, just in passing, we read of this verse in um, Jeremiah, which speaks about bringing again the captivity of Elam. Now, I don't think this is particularly, this is speaking just about Iran. This is being more specific. It's talking about the area um, today known as Khuzestan. And Khuzestan, it's been in the news before. Some of us remember this many years ago in 1980, the Iranian embassy siege. Those who were uh, kid, uh, were holding out inside the, uh, the embassy. They were Iranian Arabs, um, of which is a large population in Khuzestan. They were campaigning for the sovereignty of Khuzestan. So it's worthwhile just keeping uh, watching Khuzestan amongst a whole, whole lot of other things, of course, um, because um, it's an area which may have, uh, uh, have um, another part to play in the future as Elam becomes 
uh, may be more um, independent uh, through one means or another. But the main thing to note here is that the victory of Abraham over Elam, um, it was a, over the, the, the king of Elam, was a great victory. Now, just to note this um, in Genesis chapter 14, um, and comparing it with Daniel, uh, we won't look at these references now, um, but you'll see that the phrase four kings that occurs in Daniel chapter seven, where of course it's used of initially the four beasts in Daniel chapter seven, but no doubt with a, a future application as well. We've got Dan here mentioned in Genesis 14, which is a word for judgment. That uh, The related word now occurs in Daniel seven. And we've also got the phrase most high that crops up in Daniel 7, which is most high God in Genesis 14. Now, um, the significance of that is that the victory of Abraham over um, the four kings uh, was typical of the victory which Christ will gain when he returns to establish the kingdom, not least as prophesied in Daniel chapter 7. So we can imagine that we can just get a sense of the greatness of the victory which was achieved when um, by through, by God through Abraham and those uh, with him. Now, what we'd like to uh, do um, as we uh, finally, before we draw to a close, um, is look at one other important aspect of Genesis 14, um, and that's in relation to um, tithes. So let's turn back to Genesis chapter 14. Um, I was, actually, I was quite relieved on the, the, one of the initial slides where before the meeting started, it spoke to how it, it, we would hope, hopefully have a profitable evening. So that's good because to have a profitable evening, we have to get to the evening first. That's, uh, that made me feel a whole lot better. Right now, back in Genesis chapter four, uh, 14, we read of um, Abraham giving tithes. The end of verse 20, it says, and he gave him tithes of all and we know that's abraham giving Melchizedek uh, tithes because it speaks of that in um in hebrews in fact it mentions tithes more than once in hebrews so what what is the significance of this well what we'd like to say here is that this is a foundation passage for understanding uh the significance of tithes in scripture tithes there's various types of tithes which are uh, mentioned in the law um, and we look, look at those in detail. We're going to bring out one point, but not look at those in detail. But this is the passage to go back to um, as a sort of starting point for understanding the significance of tithes. And a key thing to note as well is verse 19, and he, where it says, And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abraham of the Most High God, possessor of heaven and earth. So God possesses everything. He possesses heaven and earth. So the significance of the giving of a tithe was really just to highlight that fact. It was it was just a token of, of what belongs to God. And everything belongs to God. Everything we have belongs to God. That's the significance of the giving of a tithe. Um, but now we'd just like to um, turn to Numbers chapter 18 to note one particular point about the giving of tithes, whether it was the children of Israel themselves giving them to the Levites or whether it was the Levites giving it to the priest. Let's turn to Numbers chapter 18, and first of all, verse 24. But the tithes of the children of Israel, which they offer as an heave offering unto Yahweh, I have given to the Levites to inherit. Um, and we, we see there that um, the tithe offering was a heave offering. And we see the same thing in verse 26 
and verse 28. Now, what is the significance of a heave offering? Well, the heave offering was um, the, the, the Hebrew word for heave offering is related to the word for uh, uh, the Hebrew word room, which is a common word, which just means uh, to lift uh, lift up, which is and it occurs there in that verse 24, which they offer or lift up as the heave offering. Now, we don't have a specific record of somebody actually specifically offering a heave offering, but the presumption is that they actually lifted up the offering uh, uh, above them as they made and made the offering. So that is the spirit of the heave offering. So a tithe was a heave offering. Now bearing that in mind, now go back to Genesis chapter 14. Genesis chapter 14 and verse uh, 22. And Abraham said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted up my hand unto Yahweh, the most high God, the possessor of heaven and earth. I will not take from the thread even to a shoe latchet. Now, these are not empty words because the Lord um, Abraham um, has already, as it were, lifted up his hands. He's given the tithe. He's given a heave offering, as it were, to use language of the law um, to um, Melchizedek. And we would suggest this is the basis of the tithe um, being a heave offering. And in that connection, let's just go to Luke chapter 18 and verse 12. Where in Luke chapter 18 and verse 12, uh, we have here the parable of the Pharisee and the publican. And the Pharisee says in verse 12, I fast twice in the week. I give tithes of all that I possess. They can imagine him lifting up his heave offering so everybody could see. And then verse 13, and the publican standing afar off would not lift up so much as his eyes unto heaven, one of the weakest muscles in the body, the eye. And the, he wouldn't even lift up his eyes to heaven. I think that's that's contrasting with the uh, the Pharisee lifting up his hands with his uh, tithes as he uh, gave the heave offering. Well, now let's go back to uh, Genesis, but this time to chapter 28. Genesis chapter 28 and verse 20. And this is a, um, a another passage which A is important for the tithes, of course, also as we see relates to Melchizedek. Verse 20 of Genesis 28, Jacob vowed a vow saying, if God will be with him and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread, just as Melchizedek gave Abram bread, and raiment to put on, so that come again to my father's house. Remember Abraham um, with his servants in his, in his house. In peace, Melchizedek, king of Salem. Then shall Yahweh be my God. And this stone which I have set for pillar shall be God's house. And of all that thou shalt give me, I will surely give the tenth unto thee. Or well, that's just a verb in Hebrew for to tithe. So that takes us, so he's clearly alluding back to um, the events that took place when Abraham met Melchizedek. Now for our final passage, um, Isaiah and chapter 61. Sorry, chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6 and verse 1. And then we can have a well-earned comfort break. Isaiah chapter 6 and verse 1. In the year that King Isaiah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. 
Now, without going into all the detail here, we know this is speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ. It tells us that in John. It says that you know, Isaiah wrote this when he spoke of his glory, the glory of Christ. But we see it relinks with Melchizedek because it's the king and the priest. He's sitting on the throne, um, but he's in a temple and he's got a train, which is relates to the garment of the high priest. So it's a king on the throne in the temple. It's a king priest. But then go to verse 13. Where we speak of that, where we read of the remnant, the faithful remnant, but yet in it shall be a tenth and it shall return and shall be eaten. So there we have a reference again to a, a tenth in a Melchizedek uh, king priest kind of context. So um, hopefully we've um, what we've seen so far is the greatness of Melchizedek with regard to him being writ large to show us how faith comes by, uh, righteousness is imputed by faith um, and not by the works of the law, which is made weak by the flesh. Um, and we've also seen the great the greatness of the victory, which Abraham achieved. Um, and we've also seen that uh, Genesis chapter 14 is a foundation passage for understanding the um, teaching, scripture teaching and commands concerning tithes. So uh, we're finished there and we'll move on next in the next uh, session, God willing to look at the topic of uh, David's Lord.